with all the animals of the earth, leaving the ark with you. I will set up my covenant with you so that never again will all life be cut off by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is a symbol of the covenant that I am drawing up between me and you and every living creature with you on behalf of every future generation. I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be a symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember the covenant between me and you and every living being among all the creatures. Floodwaters will never again destroy all creation. The bow will be in the clouds, and upon seeing it, I will remember the enduring covenant between God and every living being of all the earth's creatures. God said to Noah, this is a symbol of the covenant that I have set up between me and all the creatures on earth. The gospel reading from this morning comes from Mark, the first chapter, verses 9 through 15. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the Spirit like a dove coming down to him. And there was a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I dearly love. In you I will find happiness. At once the Spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Humanity is very good at messing things up. This has been the story of the ages. Since the moments after God created us in God's image and proclaimed we were very good, we went and messed everything up. This is a story we find in the beginning of Genesis. Humanity has trespassed the boundaries set by God. First, it was the fruit. And everything seemed to spiral downhill from there. Second, Cain kills Abel, his own brother. And third, we read of adultered relationships between celestial and earthly beings. Genesis 6, it's a weird story. It didn't take long for God's good creation to start spiraling into dangerous, deadly, and disordered voids. Violence polluted the earth. We read that the Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. So much so that the Lord regretted making human beings and all the earth, and he was heartbroken. Humanity is very good at messing things up, Humanity, that which was called to being by God out of the chaos and nothingness, seems inclined to return to that very same chaos. And so, grieved at the devious spiral humanity had taken, God decided to take action. But as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. 
In a world of evil and destruction, Noah and his descendants represent for us the moral exemplar. And most likely we know how the story goes, for we often paint murals on nurseries and sing cute songs about, frankly, a story not suited for children. God destroyed the destroyers, drowning the world in its violence and watery chaos. Humanity was no longer that very good creation which God created. Hear these strong words from Genesis 6. God wiped away every living thing that was on fertile land, from human beings to livestock to creeping, crawling things to the birds in the sky. They were wiped off the earth. Only Noah and those with him in the ark were left. The flood waters came, the waters rose higher and higher and higher, covering all of the earth, covering even the highest mountains. And eventually, God remembered Noah and the others who were still alive. And the waters receded, eventually drying up. And we witness a poignant regret from God. It seems that God learned. God says, I will not curse the fertile land anymore because of human beings, since the ideas of human minds are evil from their youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Humanity is very good at messing things up, and God has come to realize this. And thus we enter into our story today. Genesis 9 marks a pivotal moment in our primordial history, those first 11 chapters of Genesis. This is when God decides to make covenant with us. The first covenant in our scriptures, and indeed the first covenant which we'll be examining throughout this season of Lent. I am now setting up my covenant with you, with your descendants, God says, and with every living being with you, the birds, the large animals, with all of the animals of the earth. But what does covenant mean? What does it mean for God to make covenant with us? Simply speaking, a covenant is that relationship between two or more partners who make promises to one another. Think of our service of Christian marriage. Two people make covenant with one another to remain faithful, to love, to support each other. Covenants define our obligations and commitments to each other. And in our world, we might be tempted to call this a contract. But the difference is that covenants are relational and personal, much like the God whom we worship. The covenant in our story today, however, is unique. The covenant places all of the responsibility on God. Nothing is required from creation. God limits God's power by promising never again to destroy humanity with floodwaters. And humanity was still inclined for evil. But God's posture changed. God seemingly comes to better understand humanity, his creation, better. And even though his creation was still inclined to evil, God made covenant with creation anyway. A fully one-sided commitment. Noah nor any of his creation ever said a word. So you might be thinking, well, this is great. God is never going to destroy all of humanity again with floods. But if we're being honest here, 
a lot of other catastrophes could happen, right? There doesn't, at least initially, seem to be that much security in what seems to be a narrow commitment. But if we were to take a look behind the text, behind the words themselves, God says to creation, I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be the symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, we've often thought of this bow, the sign God gives creation as a reminder of God's self, of God's covenant, as a rainbow. And that makes sense, right? Some sort of atmospherical bow, a visible reminder connected to rain and rain clouds. It makes sense in the context of our story. But there seems to be a double meaning at work here. It wasn't uncommon for deities of the ancient Near East to be depicted armed with bows and arrows, signs of strength and might, a preemptive warning towards others who might seek to harm the followers of such a deity. So perhaps the God whom we worship is truly hanging up God's bow, God's weapon of mass destruction, the bow that beautiful rainbow we catch glimpses of in our skies, it's unstrung. Its aim is pointing away from creation, God's beautiful, flawed creation. God setting God's bow in the clouds, both for us to see, and as a reminder to God's self, is a complete and total reorientation of the relationship between God and humanity. God has put up the bow, but one glance at the news, and it often seems that humanity has plucked the bow off the mantle which God left it and decided to use it for ourselves. There's no shortage of violence in our world. If you squint, we don't actually have to squint too hard, we can actually just see it, we haven't really gotten that much better. We haven't gotten much better than those primordial days when humanity deviously desired to spiral into chaos. Have you turned on the news this week or today or the last hour? Corruption and violence and greed and degradation. Humanity has become thoroughly evil on the earth. Mass shootings, genocide, war, abuse, starvation, deforestation, power grabs. Humanity is very good at messing things up. And God knows this and anticipates it, even again after violence was seemingly wiped off the face of the earth. Genesis 8, God says, The intention of humanity's heart is evil from their youth. But neither, never again, will I strike down every living creature as I have done. Well, if God's not going to strike us down, it seems to imply that God is going to try everything else God can do to pursue us. Earlier, we discussed that this covenant is unique in that it's one-sided. God has made a covenant and has levied no obligations on humanity And I think this is part of the genius of our text today. God has done God's part of the covenant. How we respond, however, is up to us. 
God is going to seek us and seek us despite or perhaps because of God's knowledge of every atrocious sin we commit, both individually and collectively as a society, every grief we share, every shame and sham which veils our vision of God's beautiful reality and the reality we could have as God's beautiful creation. Whatever dwells in our hearts that keeps us from being moved to this perfect harmony that existed when God first created us. God is not going to give up on us. God is continually seeking us, not giving up on working towards restoration to an ideal world, a world full of perfect love. God is invested in the fate of humanity. Unlike some other deity, unlike a Greek or a Roman God who may sit idle to the trials and tribulations of this world, our God is bound up with humanity, deeply invested in the fate of all creation. But what are we going to do? How will we respond to the covenant faithfulness which God has shown us? We don't have to do anything. God's covenant issued us no requirements. But even in the midst of us, we remember this isn't a contract, but a covenant. A covenant that is relational and personal. There is a cosmic imbalance if we choose not to respond faithfully to God and to one another. This season of Lent, this penitential season in the life of the church recognizes this imbalance and calls us to evaluate our relationships. Through Lent, we are offered space to more deeply concentrate on seeking restoration with God and with the whole of creation by embracing our sin and mortality. Remember those words of the Ash Wednesday liturgy, repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Dust you are and to dust you shall return. In our response to God's covenant with us, will we repent, accept our finitude, and stop groping blindly for control in an uncontrollable world? Or will we continue on as we always have, violently spiraling into that chaos which existed in the beginning of the world whilst God looks trying God's best to work from within the world to redeem us? Remembering God's promise to not destroy us ever again, but all the while remaining heartbroken at what God has created. This wrestling with the trials of humanity, this cosmic imbalance, it's also picked up in today's gospel reading. Jesus rises out of the waters of baptism, much like Noah and the gang emerge from the ark, and like those on the ark, Jesus emerges from the waters favored by God and enters into a world inhabited by evil. Recall those words from Mark. At once the Spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. Jesus being in the wilderness among these wild animals presents us with a scene of dangerous ambiguity. As we read the passage, we ask ourselves, will Jesus fall prey to these violent patterns of the world, or will he reject those spiritual forces of wickedness and evil in the world? 
Mark seems to anticipate our question and immediately satisfies our thirst for an answer. One verse later, we read Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. So no, Jesus doesn't fall prey to the violent and destructive coercions of this world, but rather stands as a paradigm of what a truly changed life looks like for us, what a true covenant partner should be. And when the world saw this Jesus, when the world was confronted with the most perfect covenant partner, the one who ate with sinners and healed the sick and called the outcast to the center, when the world saw these things, they crucified him and nailed him to a tree for all to see. Perhaps it was in that moment of perfect love, the world would see what true covenantal love, what true covenantal faithfulness looks like. God has done God's part, and God continues to do God's part, recklessly loving and chasing after us day after day, but what will we do in return, not out of contractual necessity, but out of covenantal faithfulness and love? Will we repent, turning away from our sins, both collective and individual? Will we reject the evil forces of wickedness in this world? Will we accept the power God gives us? Will we repent of these sins and run towards God in response to God's love for us? Or will we continue as we always have, running farther and farther to violence and chaotic pleasures of the world? Which will it be? Which are you choosing? <laughs>